and we've officially hopped into the pod. Welcome to the show. I have done a little bit of digging into your background. Obviously, you know, there's a reason why you're here. Um, seems like you have some really interesting um, theses on, um, you know, on, on the workplace and change management. Um, and so I'm really excited to get into that. Before we do, though, would love for you to maybe give a 30-second intro on who you are and a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, Corinne Murray, I'm founder and CEO of Agate Studio, which is a small Brooklyn-based consultancy helping companies figure out how to not just approach their workplace, but really just reboot the operating system of how work gets done. Um, I think a lot of where companies are getting stuck is we're thinking about the places where work gets done rather than the work itself. Uh, and that's what I'm really here to kind of inception the conversation to come towards because that's where I think the root cause can get solutioned and just so you know I think some people might think at least folks that are specifically my age might think if we're rebooting something what we probably need to do is unplug it and plug it back in (laughs) that's exactly right yeah that's always that is always step number one let's unplug and then restart it and see what we get (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we got to try that first. We got it. We got to yes. try that first. So yeah, I definitely want to dig into these topics. Um, before we get there, though, let's actually hop back now that we have kind of the, the high level overview. Um, I would love to hear your story. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up on Long Island. So I live not to live about an hour and a half away from my folks. Uh, I went to uh, public school, played lacrosse, uh, which is, I always joke around, is one of the family businesses. The other is real estate. Uh, and went, went to college in Pennsylvania, Gettysburg College, a very teeny tiny liberal arts school uh, where I studied religion and philosophy, which, um, no pun intended, God bless my parents for not losing their minds when they're spending <laughs> gobs of money and their 19-year-old is like, yeah, I'm going to study Judaism. And they don't understand why, because I was raised Methodist. Uh, and for me, what I love so much about that education, and it can, to me, it connects so deeply to the work that I do now, because it's all about just understanding the nuance and the layers of things that are just in constant existence with one another. All these, you know, uh, inconvenient truths with uh, sort of double negatives and all these things that don't make sense. And yet they just exist because we are humans and we don't always make sense ourselves. Um, And for me, that's been a really amazing mindset to have in terms of looking at organizations looking at companies because even though there isn't um a deity so to speak organizations companies have culture and they have rituals and traditions and they have leaders and so there are are some very similar uh frameworks and behaviors that are found in just large groups of people regardless of what the context might be so i you know kind of do a curtsy in my mind every time I think about how I was able to tie that education, which I love so much, into what I do professionally when the chief concern of everyone around me was, what are you going to do with that? Um, and, you know, the answer at the time was, I don't know, I'll figure it out. And so, you know, yay me. I, <laughs> I did figure that I did figure that one out, but it did take some time. I, out of college, I started at CBRE, which is a big real estate firm. 
Uh, I jumped around doing market research. I was a broker for a little while. I was on corporate accounts, uh, you know, kind of just Goldilocksing my way through the real estate world of just it, all of this stuff was interesting, but didn't quite fit what I, it fit what felt good for me. Um, and then I moved to American Express, which is where I actually had my first workplace job and workplace strategy, really focusing on how people interact with space, not just the operation or the creation of space like that, that relationship of humans, both on an individual basis and on a group basis, how they relate to space. It was really my first entree into this more macro thinking about uh, how the workplace is a physical expression of the way a company, uh, the way the company treats its people or views its relationship with its people. Uh, and so there's a lot of really, really interesting sort of psychology and, you know, normative things that come up in how companies create those types of systems and, uh, and practices, which just, once I got into it, it, you know, the light bulbs were turning on in all the, all the right ways. Um, and then from there, I jumped around to Gensler, which is a big architecture and design firm. I was there for a very brief minute before getting scooped up by WeWork. Uh, and that was at the tippy tippy top of its prominence and at the very, very bottom of its, uh, of its, you know, turn around the world before the pandemic. And I've worked at a couple of land, I've worked at a landlord uh, here in New York City. Uh, I've done a couple of other consulting gigs. And then I found myself wanting to go out on my own in, for a lot of reasons, but mainly this conversation around what the future of work is, what the future of work and places, the future of living uh, for those who really get poetic about it. Um, it really starts with our relationship to work, which right now is deeply, deeply broken. And I don't think we can achieve this really idealistic and utopian idea of what the future of living is until we, you know, roll up our sleeves and get into the gutters of like how we can improve our American society specifically's relationship to work, how it gets done and what commitment really looks like because hustle culture is not helping anyone. All right. Well, I'm very fascinated to dive into this. So <laughs> by the way, the the thing that immediately popped in my mind when you were talking about corporations and religion, how there may not be like the almighty deity, but there's still a culture there. Yep. I, I immediately thought, yeah, but what about the almighty shareholder? Mm -hmm. that, that could be a very easy parallel from there to there. Oh, whilst, totally. While shareholders may not be omnipotent or all all powerful there could there could be some correlations there so i think oh, that analogy still i think that analogy still holds absolutely up. and then you know mm -hmm. i worked for i worked at WeWork. i worked for adam newman and he was a very iconoclastic figure as a leader um and you know just his relationship both to the attention and praise he was getting from employees from investors from just the world stage in general, um, it really was a pretty, pretty dynamite case study for, <laughs> for my thesis around the comparisons. Okay. So speaking of the thesis, let's dive into the thesis. Let's. Um, I, I believe I heard you say that the, the current relationship with work is broken mm -hmm. and hustle culture is not helping anybody. 
let's dive into that. What exactly yeah. is the thesis? What is the, I guess it would be the ideal work, work relationship, workplace uh, setting maybe? I don't even know exactly how to yeah. ask the question right, but I think you get what I'm, sure. what I'm going after. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the challenge with answering that is a couple of things. It, it, it is something that does vary person to person, even region to region. I think one of the most interesting things that we've been seeing since the pandemic is how uh, how hyper-regional people's uh, sort of rebound has been. I think in New York City, which was one of the most hard-hit cities at the beginning of the pandemic, there's been much more like focus on being in your community, being near where your things and where your people are. Uh, and even uh, there was a great uh, Wall Street Journal journal article recently about uh, a very similar dynamic that's happening in Washington, D.C. So, the you know, the central business district is still sort of like petering along, but residential areas like Georgetown are absolutely thriving. So it's where a lot of people live. It also is bolstered by the university that's nearby and everything is thriving. People are at restaurants, they're going to these shops, they're just, it, there's buzz there as, you know, to, to call back to an Adam Newmanism. Um, and so it's hard to answer because we're still too in the middle, but I think the important thing that needs to be done first and what I am working really hard to kind of do that inceptioning for, or just kind of get more collective understanding that this is the step we need to take is, you know, it's kind of like the, um, the Kubler-Ross, which is a change management or like the, the cycle of grief graphic of like first is the first step is acceptance and then you go through like bargaining and denial and all <laughs> all these different things the first step is really admitting collectively that we have a broken relationship with work and i think people would i think a lot of people would nod and say yes that's true but if they were to look at ways that they might be able to start improving that relationship uh fear of rocking the boat too aggressively wins out because we we've been conditioned to think uh everything that happens within a an organization or just within work in general is essential and i also just finished rereading essentialism uh which is a wonderful a book wonderful book it was very i and i had it on audiobook it was really really helpful just like really think hard and pretty brutally about what actually matters. And I think that we are, we're sort of trained to think that this monolith of how a company works is how it should work. And if we were to, and if we try to change things, like we got to be really delicate, we got to be really careful. And there isn't a ton of investigation in terms of what are the low hanging fruit things that we can you know, manipulate, we can change, we can completely throw away because they're outdated. Uh, those exercises on an ongoing or at least like an annual basis in terms of just doing what's the audit, what's the diagnostics for how the company operates, uh, it doesn't exist yet. But I think that that's what the moment is really calling for is 
uh, I'm blanking on who said it, but I love this quote so much is you can't change what you don't measure. And right now there are not a lot of mechanisms to measure what is, you know, what is a genuinely valuable investment of time, money, effort within an organization in terms of what affects the bottom line. Uh, and so that's, that's what I really am focused on because I think that's the first really crucial step to move toward, you know, whatever our own individual or, you know, subculture definition of future of living looks like. So I'm still not a hundred percent clear on what, on what the thesis is totally yet. So I, okay. I want to dig into this more. <laughs> I think it was Confucius that said the first step to the first step is to call things by the right name. So like, I want to yes. really, I want to really dig into this and be able to identify what exactly the thesis is. Maybe where we could start mm-hmm. is on the idea that the current work stuff is broken. Okay. Yes. What exactly is broken and what do we mean by broken? Like, let's, Fair. let's really dig into that and get a clear we'll yeah. back. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. So I think that, there are a lot of things that are broken, what are in my control or things that I have the ability to influence are a couple of things. How we how we treat things like return to office, which I think we should have stopped talking about even before it started, because we need to think about how work gets done with the tools and uh, the tools that we have and with the conditions of not everyone is going to be in the office at the same time. That was true before the pandemic, but it became more and more true at scale after the pandemic when we all learned, oh, working from home actually is kind of nice or working from a coffee shop near my kid's school is really convenient. So companies should be focusing on rather than getting everyone to come back to the same box and kind of check the, you know, check that off the list to say, oh, everyone's back, therefore we're being productive. We need to start thinking about what does asynchronous work look like? What does just, how do we create a digital central nervous system of how work gets done at a company? Not pushing people back into the old model that wasn't even working that well prior to the pandemic. Uh, So that I think would be, that's what I have control over is helping to, helping companies and helping leaders get past, I need people in the office for me to feel certain that they're getting work done to we need to create new systems and ways that people can generate their work amplify the fact that work is getting done and all of it can be uh all of it can be visible to people who need to see it and also just engender a level of trust in all of these people who were hired as highly talented people to do this job in the first place so those are things that I have in my sphere of influence to change. And as that, as that mentality of trust and uh, coming together for specific and purposeful reasons, uh, and then being more lax about when people get together outside of those particular reasons, start to kind of snowball in the direction of more flexibility, more time flexibility, more geographical flexibility. And that 
then allows each individual to architect this future of living that makes sense for them. So it's all these little tiny building blocks of just slightly rethinking how things get done. It's not completely throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's what are these tiny things? And so, you know, rather than return to office, let's think about how we can contain, how we allow work to, how do we sustain work continuity, regardless of where people are? Start with that, make sure that's successful. And then you start to build in, these are the kinds of activities that either based on research or just based on what we believe our culture is about, we'd like you to do those things in the office. And we're going to ask that the entire company do those kinds of activities, but on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, when there's the highest probability of lots of people being in the office. And because that's the case, we will do, we'll have some sort of programming around maybe it's mentorship or it's, you know, an employee benefits fair or something like that, that is another added, uh, added reason to make people feel like they're there for a reason rather than just, all right, our version of hybrid is we say you come in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and it just, and that's that. Okay. So I think this first pillar is let's not just say, all right, everybody back because that's how we do it. It's saying, it's saying at least you know part of the thesis is okay well we want people to be wherever they're the most productive and so let's tackle it from that instead of just come back because we said so it's like go wherever you can get the most work done whether that be in the office or out of the office or you yes. know, get the best the highest quality of uh results done or whatever it is and then totally. if there do need to be things like mentorship with one-on-ones mm-hmm. or whatever then figure out when people naturally are coming back to the office or what that natural thing is. And then building, building in these activities and these programs to fit the natural cadence of when the workforce happens to be in the office. Absolutely. And the, the getting the, getting the best or getting the most amount of work done is not just an individual metric. It's a group metric. So your individual preference might be working from a library or working from a coffee shop, but if you're working with a group, there needs to be some sort of mechanism that uh, that doesn't let you kind of be a rogue agent and do what you want to do, even if it's counter to what the you know what would be best for the group. So results based, exactly easy to so measure. very yes, very easy to measure. Sometimes challenging to implement, and that's why a lot of companies are kind of they're they're holding off from doing that because you know, going back to the Kubler-Ross, you know, denial, the the cycle of grief model, we are in the denial and bargaining phase right now. And you can see that with how many really full-throated efforts of getting people back to the office there have been and how, how heavily it's been covered in the media. We're in that phase of, it really would be easier if we can go backwards but there's no such thing. And so when we are ready to actually take action, these are the kinds of things that are really going to make a difference in terms of not just success of individuals, but success of the business. And when you are able to think about what are the strategic and specific ways that people gather, 
that includes being physically together or meeting over Zoom or meeting over, you know, meeting over a phone call. All of those need to have very specific reasons. Why are we talking? What are the like, what are the desired outcomes? Who needs to know about this? And what's all the existing information that exist that's here today? And if that does if those qualifications don't exist, then that's not a valid reason to meet. And if we have something like that, to me, this is the next pillar of being really specific about the what and the why. And when we get that kind of rigorous filtration, the amount of hour, the number of hours we get back per week from those just ongoing meetings or recurring sessions that you don't necessarily have an agenda for, but you're just making sure that everyone's in the loop. And then we have memes like this meeting could have been an email or all those different kinds of things. There's a lot of lost hour. There are several lost hours per week per person that can be regained for focus work, heads down work, or just, you know, any sort of tactical, more hands-on work. And then that's where we can start to have a more realistic conversation about something like a four-day work week or something, you know, something that's more flexible in terms of how much, how many hours we're putting into the work that we're doing, because our five-day work week is just based on what on what Henry Ford did with his factories a hundred years ago. That's that's really it. Well, wait a second. Now we're going. That's like I feel like that's pillar three of a okay. of a. So so let's so okay let's see. This is how my brain works. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. I like it. Um. So okay. So pillar two is now that we've decided on whether we're going to be in the office not in the office or somewhere in between Yep. in which it seems like, and maybe we even need to talk to wrap this one up a little bit more of hmm. maybe for a super big company, um, they have to start with one and then like go all the way to one extreme and then kind of work back a little bit to see yeah. like, okay, well maybe we can do this or that or that. But for a smaller company, you might be able to just say like, okay, do what you want. Let's see what happens. And then yes. we'll adjust from there. Like that mm -hmm. seems like it could be just a practical, how do we implement this stuff? Like just go forth, test, you'll mess up. That's fine. Then you adjust from there. So that, that seems yep. like that could be a reasonable, thing. and then, but then measure, like yes, measure. Has to. Okay. What are and the then results? iterate. You can't Ex not. Right. Yeah, exactly. But like, if we, if we were not all remote and then we sent everybody to go forth and our production jumped by 30 percent keep going but if it dropped by 30 percent whoa we need to take a yeah. look at that because there's totally. something there right well even so, with the even with the jack up of 30 percent, look at what's doing that you know like exactly because even if it's a spike for three months is that a sustainable spike is that just you know is that a you know, just a spike because it was a global pandemic and we didn't know what else to do with our time other than sit in front of a computer. So all of these things are really important qualitative data points that if you're just looking at these quantitative numbers, you don't have the context for. And so, um, you know, to get to that storytelling, like we were talking about earlier, we need to kind of put the meat on the bones of what's happening and why. And you only get, we only get that when we measure 
and evaluate. And a lot of companies, I, companies are pretty famously not great at measuring themselves in areas that don't relate to their profitability. Yeah, I could see that. Well, then we have operating systems that we could use. There's a lot of literature out there. We could use OKRs or you know whatever it is yep. that we want to use. There's a lot. There's a lot of ways to do that. I think that might be slightly outside of the scope of what we're talking about here of actually how to measure that. Um, but if you think it'd be worth circling back to, then then let's do it. We can parking lot right. it uh, for now. Okay. So then pillar two is we've now decided on we want to try this or we're doing this, and now we're seeing the results that we can live with. Given mm -hmm. the amount, of, you know, so we've made the trade-offs, we've done whatever we need to do. Okay, now we have to decide, now we know where we are, now we have to decide what to do. And that yep. what to do part definitely would include figuring out these meetings that everybody memes about. And yep. <laughs> frankly, I've spent some time um, in those meetings, and I don't like them at all either. So yeah. I can totally understand where people are coming from. Okay. A quick, a quick uh, hypothesis here. Why would we not all immediately adopt AI? For example, right mm. now in this podcast interview, we're able to have this conversation. Previously, I would have to be taking notes because I yeah. would want to remember stuff and not have to go back and listen to it seven times. Although this, this is definitely worth listening to at least seven times. <laughs> but you know, to go back to get, to be able to get the notes, right? Now we have AI. And right. at no at no hindrance to us, at no effort to us, it is now auto-transcribing this whole interview. And that's totally mm -hmm. rad. Okay. What would stop companies or businesses from having these meetings where people are like, it could have been an email? Well, now it can very easily, right? Because yeah. if we can get this auto-transcribed and then have the people in there that need to say things and then pop that over to the rest of the people who need to just hear it or download it. And then they have follow-up questions, which can be done by email. Like, does that not instantly solve that problem? Can we not just ax all these meetings? Like, what am I missing here? Um, it's it, you're not necessarily missing anything. I think the I, I think the one thing that needs to happen before we arrive at something like this is the answer is I I think what a lot of people struggle with is we we feel symptoms of problems, you know the overbooking of meetings is a symptom of us not having good communication structures for across an organization. We don't have good information. We don't have a good central nervous system of data storage and data communication within an organization. So that's more of the root cause as opposed to let's just ask meetings and have, have AI do it for us. It's not to say that AI is not part of the solution, but we need to do much more excavation before we say, let's get rid of those things because meetings meetings exist for a reason. They exist because things need to- Some, Sometimes not a good one though. <laughs> sometimes not a good one, but it, good, good or, you know, without uh, labeling the virtue of them, we need to figure sure. out what are the reasons that people feel compelled to have these meetings. And- um, AI is, AI is, I'm still very much a novice in terms of AI, mainly because I've just been too busy to do anything other than read all the, all these newsletters and try to try to tread water, but it plays a part. We just need to figure out where it fits in the puzzle. 
I'm I'm of the belief that it is not the it's not the sole solution, but there are they are individual players in what can be the composite solution. Uh, and so that takes work to figure out what is this new framework of what we believe makes sense for how our company operates what can be automated and what can we leverage AI and just technology in general to make it more frictionless, uh, make it easier to access, anything like that. Uh, and then we can kind of just pull something off the shelf and plug it in. And then we need to make sure that there is someone or a team managing this whole ecosystem. You know, We need to have someone who can kind of see from soup to nuts how a how a meeting gets generated if it does and why it does and who needs to be there and all those different credentials and then we figure out how do, how does ai or how does a technology tool help us uh help us capture what was discussed help us create actions that come after this meeting because that's another fun thing about meetings is very few of them have really rigorous outcomes and measurable actions for people to do. Uh, meetings would be much more effective if that was the case. So it's a lot of different things in terms of where do tools, where do tools fit in and where do behaviors need to change? And in this particular case of meetings, there's a case for both. We need because if we were to just introduce AI to meetings, the meetings would be more effective. That's for certain but it wouldn't necessarily solve the time blocking challenges that we have. You know, the currency of our time, both from a business and a personal perspective is in my belief, the core problem that we need to be solving. I see. So you're trying to go upstream a little bit of like, does this person even need to be on this meeting? Does this meeting yeah. even need to happen? And then Okay, so then yeah. that's almost more going on the the essentialism uh, yes, exactly. of, of thinking of like, is this absolutely critical? Yes, like, and if it is 100%. critical, it, if it is critical, how do we make it as efficient and effective as possible? It, and who needs to be on it? Who really right. needs to be on it to say right. things or to do <laughs> things or whatever, right. you know, whatever they need to do? So once we get, well, I mean, that to me seems like, leadership needs to sit down and do an audit and be like all right what is this actually doing for us here 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 and here do are we going to get so just thinking from like a appeal to people's inner base greed of like you know i want to get like what's mm -hmm. in it for me type thing right so for the leadership if they want to get the most out of their people then they would probably want their people to be able to spend the most time doing those things and having the most time to actually be taking action and yes. you know get the stuff done in the most efficient and effective manner. So if they can stop roping their people into things that they don't need to be in, then their people can be more effective. So maybe even yeah. from that perspective of like, let's appeal to the, you know, to the the lesser virtues, which we all have, and they all drive us. I think it was JP Morgan that said, everybody has a reason for doing something, one that sounds good and the real reason. So let's, <laughs> let's appeal to the real reason so we can actually yep. make lasting change, right? So- Yes. Okay. So that seems like a good way to get to, you know, measure it, see if we can be more effective, rip people out of the meetings. If you ever need them, you can call them back. That's the right. beauty of these things. Right. And then once you've then decided who does need to be on it, maybe other people need to hear it. 
that's not a good yes. that's not a necessary reason to bring people on a meeting because then we can use AI for sure. I know because we're doing it right now. And we can mm-hmm. get auto transcribed, summary sent out, dig into things. And the best part is if you have a good enough piece of software, which I'm not going to shell a particular software, but the one we're using right now has this functionality. You can literally click a button and it will create either a highlight or a call to action. You could take a quick note on like this CTA for this person on the meeting boom, or off the meeting, boom. So when they see the transcription, then they know, hey, I got to do something here or there. And this is exactly what I have to do. So all those call to actions and everything, that absolutely should be adopted. If I had to make a, you know, a wild guess that has no basis of anything scientific, I would say we could at least be, as America, 10%, at least 10% more efficient if we immediately started using these uh, AI tools in meetings, simply with the call to action button and the highlight yes. button, tagging the people that need to be tagged and not dragging people into these meetings. Like that alone, we could probably increase our GDP by five to 10%. Just, just <laughs> that alone because of all the additional. Uh, sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those kind of, those are always fun sort of unquantifiable, potentially quantifiable things to think about of like, what if we just pulled this little thing, like this inconsequential needle out of the grenade and just see how things function. This for me is one of those of like, just we, we need to fix our relationship to work. That is the overall thesis. The first step, the first real thing to dig into is our relationships to meetings and the, you know, figuring out how do we make them more efficient and how do we really qualify whether they are, they're needed are the two first filtration systems that we need to approach. And the, you know, I think one of the main reasons that companies and executives have not bought into this is I, I'll have to dig around, but I, I saw a visual, I think maybe Dror Poleg posted it recently. He's a futurist and writer, focuses on the future of cities and future of real estate and uh, business in general. He, I th- I'm almost certain it was him. I'm sorry to whoever, <laughs> if it wasn't him. Uh, but basically it was showing this diagram of basically a pie chart of how an executive tends to spend their day and how an average worker tends to spend their day. And the proportion of meetings that executives have is almost twofold to what individuals have. And that's true because when you think about it, everything, once you get above a certain VP or SVP level, all your work is just meetings You because those are the people that are having conversations and then they delegate the hands-on keyboard work to other folks. So in their minds, understandably, given what their work experience is, meetings are crucial, but we are, we're in a time of really needing to examine nuance and needing to examine different circumstances and use cases in a way that we kind of glossed over when it came to work in general prior to the pandemic. So we really need to put on, we need to really be using microscopic level scrutiny to really figure out, okay, cool. This is just how executives and, you know, higher up leaders function in work and their days and their lives tend to revolve around meetings. Maybe that doesn't, maybe that works for them. Maybe it doesn't, but we at least need them to understand 
that everyone else's relationships to meeting it does not necessarily have the same power or have the same hold. And so how do we make sure that both parties can get enough of what they believe is true and what enough of what they need? The, the blocker right now is most big corporations have a very glutty middle management sector. And so it's the people who are managing the teams of doers. And there are a lot of small pods of those types of people. And it's not to say that these people are bad by any stretch, but a lot of companies have yet to really determine what this new age manager actually looks like. Because what we really understand it to be right now tends to be a bottleneck. Work gets done and then it goes to the senior person and then the senior person presents it to the higher ups. And then it it's this kind of, uh, hourglass function. So all the lower guys, then the middle, and then all the way up to the higher ups. What the nature of people management and team management going forward is actually looking more like being a facilitator, being someone who can grease the wheels for the people who are doing the work, people who are really enmeshed in the operations of a company and they know people cross-functionally and they have really, really strong relationships with those people cross-functionally and layers above to enable good work to happen. And so it's a very kind of, um, you know, cue from Bond movies kind of position to be in of you are the person who at a drop of a hat knows what tools or resources are needed uh, knows who the who you need to be talking to and where they are. So that's a very different, uh, it's a very different facade of what a leader and what a manager looks like than what we've been conditioned to understand and also be trained to be as managers ourselves. So that I think is one of that to me is the next step. You go after meetings and you figure out how to make them as efficient as possible and as limited as possible. Then you start to get into, okay, well, if people are just able to do this work really, really effectively, and the people who work in all of these meetings socializing this work don't necessarily have the, um, I don't want to say value because they do have value. We just haven't figured out where to reposition it. Uh, how we can repurpose these, these people managers and these team leaders, uh, and we need to figure out what their new or their morphed role is within organizations and then how many are actually needed. That That's a question I don't necessarily know the answer to, but that's the next step is figuring out the effectiveness of the organization. Is it effective to have all these middle managers talking to one another, but not necessarily being the being the doers? And maybe the argument is yes. And, you know, there's a, there's a robust defense of why they're still needed or why they're still needed in the volume that they exist. And then there's, there is most certainly, I know there are Harvard, Harvard business review articles saying the middle manager is probably going to be an endangered species in the, in the near future. Um, we need to figure out what that role looks like because it can't just be executives and workers that's a bit uh futile uh <laughs> a bit a bit middle ages of us to kind of go back to but we need to figure out what that next 
middle layer looks like and what it is that they do. So to me, those are the first two steps. Examine one of the one of the main tenants of work, which is meetings, and then start to look at the scope of work of managers who also tend to spend the majority of their time in meetings. I understand. Well, I think I understand. The, <laughs> the one the one thing that did catch it caught my attention. And mm. I've been thinking about this a lot. So maybe I'm hyper focusing on something that's not even a, a super key part of the whole um the whole this whole pillar of the thesis. But I think I heard you said say something to the effect of um reinforcing or, or helping people something about what they believe to be true. Um I'm a very, very, very big proponent of people absolutely deceive themselves and a lot of things that we think to be true or we believe to be true are in fact not true and because we're basing a lot of our then next level derivative decisions off of these base assumptions that are not true we're totally messing up in big ways and i'm sure i'm the biggest i'm sure i'm making the most mistakes of the with the greatest number of uh opportunities for self-deception that have been realized right so you know speaking mostly to myself i almost think it would be more you know not being the expert on this mm. i almost think it would be more effective to instead of trying to reinforce what people think to be true just so that they can feel comfortable let's as a people decide that we don't want to think that we don't want to like that we don't need to feel like everything that we're saying is right, just because yeah. we think it is now. Let's instead seek to find the truth collectively and then move towards truth because that way we don't have to argue like opinion versus fact, truth yeah. versus what I perceive to be true, but it's actually not true because those that's just inefficient. That just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, that might not I do. be a core. Yeah, okay. I, I, I totally understand what you're what you're saying and the and the feeling behind it because if I had my druthers, I would just say like forget it. Like this this thing over here is more accurate than what we're doing now. But the problem the problem with that, and I say this out of experience because I have been that person in my younger in my career, and I've just said, This is it, and here's how we get there. And if one of the one of the most humbling things that I have learned through my career is people will not change until they themselves are ready to. And so your job as a change creator, which is, you know, effectively what I am, you need to present the change that you want in a way that is not going to scare the bejesus out of the people who need to adopt the change and internalize the change. And so this is very much a, you need to meet these people where they are and recognize that wherever you are is light years ahead of where the average person undergoing this, this change with you will have been. So it's a very, uh, it's a big journey in how to remove your ego from outcomes, uh, even though you are still very entrenched in what you believe to be true and what you want the desired outcome to be. Um, it won't work. It, it, the saying of like, you're only as fast as your slowest runner or you know whatever that, that idiom is, 
very much applies to this. If you've got a, a, you know, a caboose of people who are resisting, whatever your ideal, they will be, they'll be what's remembered of the change that you're trying to make. And so that's your cohort of who you really need to work with and figure out how can you kind of, it's a little bit of, it's kind of taking on a mentality of delivering exposure therapy. How can you give them enough change that they can withstand and understand in me- in in drips and drabs in ways that, you know, this is why I go with a very low hanging fruit kind of logic because low hanging fruit are the things that most people feel the pain of. And you can get people who might be ornery about way bigger, way more radical change to, you'll get, they will shut down and they won't participate and they'll break the thing that you want to create. They need the little ones. They exactly. So that's where, so I balance my sort of root cause analysis exercise of, you know, I know exactly what the root cause is with what's the first easiest step to get there. And so, you know, very much how I started, which is very esoteric and out there of like, we need to fix our relationship to work. So that way we can get to this next step of whatever the future actually can look like for us. Uh, The first step to that is fixing something that everyone can pretty universally like recognize the pain of and then just kind of going from there of like what's what are other things that are as universal as possible what what's a what's a ubiquitous pain in the ass and if it if it at least tangentially can connect to greasing the wheels for my larger mission then i'm i'm bought into making it better and so that's really that to me that's the best way to balance both of those desires so i still am making strides towards this larger much more intense and expansive mission but you gotta bring them all with you that's exactly Mm. right you have to like this is servant leadership leading from behind and so you can you can only move as quickly as your slowest people and you know regardless of generation regardless of you know region in the world you will always have people who will drag their heels and be skeptical or be concerned and it is your job to at least have compassion for where those concerns and fears come from and though you know even if they might not be accurate the feelings are real and so how do you how do you acknowledge those how do you help them work through those so that way you can get to work on the rest of your your mission? Totally. Because otherwise it, it would appear to be an Atlas situation where you're mm. trying to push and they're but they're resisting. And so you're going to be pushing forever and it's not exactly. going to go anywhere. Yeah, that, that makes exactly. sense. It's almost yeah. like and I only okay. know that from okay. experience of doing the other hard doing it the hard way. Totally. Well, I think that's, I think that's a very similar thing to um, even like sales or influence or mm-hmm. persuasion in general, or, you know, working with people. Um, yeah. It, it seems to be very similar. What what kind of pops in my mind when you're describing that of like, it's a journey, it's a journey and you have to, you know, it's the, the, that old saying about the frog, when you, if you put the frog in boiling yes. water, it's going to jump out. But if you put it in lukewarm water and slowly raise the temperature, yes, you'll, 
you'll be able to cook it. Um, yes. It almost seems like to, to get to the, to the well, the well cooked uh, frog legs of, you know, this analogy is getting a little silly, but to get to, to I promise the, I'm not to the, trying to cook or eat anyone. <laughs> yeah, right, right. To get to get to the to the final thing that we want to get to, the outcome, maybe it does make sense to more start off at the easy thing and then slowly over time build into the big thing. And then you're compounding change day by day and so on and so yeah. forth. Then you can get to where you want to go. Okay, that makes a lot because of sense. then it's because it's 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 doubly benef beneficial of you're making moves in this process, but you're also teaching people along the way because as they accept new levels of change, you're expanding their understanding of what you're after. And so it, it you build a coalition as when you when you go about it this way and nothing nothing gets changed if you're just a lone a lone agent. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. So the one last thing I want to tackle, I know we're getting close to our time here, mm. is um, one of the first things you mentioned of, um, it seems like a very anti-hustle culture stance. Yes. So I want to I want to hear your um, thesis on that and give you the floor on to dive into that and like, what does that actually mean to you? And yeah. what do you mean by, yeah, so let's dig into that whole idea. Yeah, so- I, you're right. I do have a pretty anti-hustle thesis, I think for, from a global perspective. Uh, I would say at this moment in time, my day-to-day -day life does not reflect my, my general ethos, but that is, I, I am hustling now to get to not hustle later. Uh, that's what I'm telling myself at least. Um, but generally speaking, um, I really think that I think that hustle culture has taken us away from how we connect with other people and how we just connect with where we are, you know, because we're and so we, focused. Can you define what you mean by hustle sure. culture first and then sure. Yeah. Uh thank you. Um Hustle culture to me is this very single-minded approach, single-minded focus on attaining or acquiring or just reaching something. So it's this very kind of hyper Sisyphean mentality of I'm always going to be working super hard to get to the next thing. So it's very rat race mentality. So that's what I believe the underpinning of hustle culture is all about and then it just got amplified by social media and people looking beautiful and very well dressed while they're hustling and i obviously worked for a company that literally had hustle culture on its coffee mugs so it's a lot and i would say i really started to solidify my perspective on my wariness around hustle culture around the end of my tenure at WeWork. Um, and I remember just spending some time reflecting and just thinking about what my future just in general was going to look like or going to feel like. And it was pretty, I, I remember having this thought in my mind of, man, like working 60, 65 hours a week and feeling anxious and just not really feeling like I'm getting the quality rest that I need. Uh, 
I was like, this can't be what it's like for the rest of my career. This can't be what it's like for the rest of my working years, can it? Um, and I live in New York City, which is a stupidly expensive place to live. And thinking about, you know, the hopes that I have for my personal life and wanting to make space and time for having a family, spending more time with, you know, the family I have now. And, you know, that, that was, that was not, those things were only going to be compatible with my life if I kept trying to punch the ceiling and get, you know, get a higher salary, get a bigger title, always be jumping around. And uh, yeah, I just, that was really the the genesis of hustle culture is just, it's not healthy. It's not, and it's not something that I really, in my heart, believe in. And so I want to take this sentiment that I have about my own experience, who, you know, I am a white woman in New York City. I have been really lucky with the work that I've been able to do and the jobs I've been able to get. And there are people who do not have the affordances that I do that are still subjected to this hustle culture, but for way less pay, commuting way further, not having that, not having the health benefits or just general benefits that I do. And so it's a really oppressive system when you take a step back and think about the consequences of it. And I want to, I want to prove that work can still be done and things can still be profitable and successful and effective while still being able to provide people with the time and the space and whatever geography they choose to create a life outside of work. And that's that's really, that's the the undercurrent to everything that I do is it should be up to every, to me, work is still important, but it's not the only thing that that is important in someone's life. There's this really good passage um, by uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the, mm. you know, way back in, I think it was from 1913. Yeah. It was a, it may have been a speech or maybe something delivered, but if you look up Sagamore Hill, Teddy okay. Roosevelt, 1913, it's a really good passage. At the end of the passage, and it talks about the duality of needing to combine traits and virtues in order to really be effective as a civilization, but but to be a virtuous and effective civilization at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, you know, for example, it's important to love peace and it's important to be able to get things done because mm-hmm. somebody that could lo- that loves peace it could be somebody that's strong and get things done it could also be somebody that's lazy and doesn't want to do anything mm-hmm. and somebody that could be very effective at getting things done well they could be evil or they could be you know uh good and yeah. kind duality so it's like yeah exactly exactly it's just it's kind of goes through those different dualities at the end of it talking about the importance of all these things mentioned must be underpinned by a a, a, a care for family mm-hmm. as like the, this is why we do it all. That's kind of what, at least what I got from it was like, and we do it yeah. all, all this stuff for family. So I think you might really enjoy that passage. I would highly yeah, encourage I'll checking to ta- that I'll out. Take, I, it, it sounds familiar. I'll have to double back to it, but yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it is a, work is a component of life. It is not the only, it is not the only component of life. And, you know, 
all the other configurations, whether it is your biological family, whether it's your chosen family, your neighbors, whatever composition people sure. create, I don't, yeah, I don't care. I just want to make sure that people have the space to architect what they want out of it. Totally. I also think it is important to also say some people derive the most satisfaction from the work. And yes. if that choice involves doubling down on the work, then power to you because Absolutely. right on like right. that should, I, that's, I think is the duality is like people Absolutely. should have the yeah. choice either way. Absolutely. Yeah. People should have the choice to either invest that time elsewhere or double down on this is just where you're, you've figured out how to create community within the work that you do. And so therefore you get double value. I don't have any other than my own life. I do not have, uh, I don't have any, I don't, I don't, I don't have any influence or pressure around what people do with that time or where they want to invest it. I just want people to have that autonomy to do with it what they want. Totally. I want people to have the choice. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, this has been fun. Um, I really, I really like digging into these ideas and, yeah. and talking about the thesis. And I know I was putting up some, some challenges on the other side. No, I'm, here. I'm um, glad. <laughs> but that, but you know that it wouldn't be intellectually honest to to just blindly accept like let's talk about it let's, let's totally and this is it. just and, this is just the circularity of my brain so having some framework and structure to it is always helpful <laughs> well i appreciate the um all the ideas and and yeah. letting uh letting it loose and and uh going for it um cool well i'd be very interested to see as time progresses um as you work with more organizations and you're testing this theory against the if if the theory is like the waves crashing on the beach mm -hmm. and the beach is the the impenetrable that does not move you know unless very slowly then yep. the different organizations bringing this to and having the the waves of uh of ideas and innovation and and trying to be forward thinking and progressive there crashing upon what is already existing and seeing what yep. happens that yep. is what I'm very interested to to dig into. So maybe we can do like a a follow up with some case studies of Ooh, how it works that. with different yes. you know, different big uh, big organizations and see, see what that. we can what we can learn from that. Yes, hopefully so hopefully those case studies will exist sooner than later. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm thinking like you know maybe like a year in, five years in, ten yeah. years in, absolutely per case study, and you know keep like a running log of how all this stuff oh, yeah. has worked out. That'd be really interesting. Definitely, definitely. Cool. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Um, thanks for having and, me. Ben. Uh, thanks for uh, taking a break from the hustle to to come <laughs> chat with me. <laughs> Always. <laughs> nicely, nicely done. Good ending. <laughs> and uh, and to everybody watching and listening, thank you very much. You're all the best. I love you so much. And I will see you on the next episode. Take care.